I'm Kyle Simon. And I'm Corey Astle. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast about conservative ideas and thinkers. We explore what it means to call yourself a conservative, where conservatism has been, and where it's going. Each week, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. Join the conversation by liking us on Facebook or following us on Twitter at ConsMinds. It's at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 106, we read Dobbs versus Jackson's Women's Health Organization, a blockbuster Supreme Court case from earlier this year. All right, so we've all heard of this case, and I don't think we need a bio because Justice Alito is the one who wrote it, and he was appointed by President Bush not too long ago. So the court is taking up this question of a Mississippi abortion law. It says, Mississippi's Gestational Age Act provides that except in a medical emergency or in the case of a severe fetal abnormality, a person shall not intentionally or knowingly perform or induce an abortion of an unborn human being if the probable gestational age of the unborn human being has been determined to be greater than 15 weeks. So the respondents, that is who's being sued, is Jackson's Women's Health Organization is an abortion clinic and one of the doctors, Dobbs, challenged the act in federal district court, alleging that it violated the court's precedents, establishing a constitutional right to abortion as established in Roe v. Wade, and then altered but uh, reaffirmed in case uh, Planned Parenthood of Southeastern Pennsylvania versus Casey. So the court takes up this question of could the state of Mississippi pass a law that bans abortions after 15 weeks? And the holding, and we're going to go through all of this, the holding is that the Constitution does not confer a right to abortion. The cases of Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey are overruled, and the authority to regulate abortion is returned to the people and their elected representatives. That's the holding. So this is a this is an overrule of those cases and striking down really the the constitutional right of abortion. And I think we should go through this, but essentially the majority, led and written by Justice Samuel Alito, he goes through. First of all, is it? He takes up the question: Is does the Constitution confer a right to abortion? Is it referenced in the Constitution? You know, if it's not referenced, is it found in our nation's history and tradition? Uh, is it an entrenched right? Uh, something that we've found to be like um, intrinsic to being an American? And then, uh, then takes up the question of stare decisis, which we can talk about in more detail which is essentially asks, uh, stare decisis is this doctrine that says, basically, if it's been ruled upon and it's been the law for a long time, it should basically stay the law so that people can rely upon it. So let's jump into it. You want to take us through uh, through the beginning of the decision? Yeah. I mean, it, he they get right to the to the main event pretty early. It's... Um... I mean, of course, this is this is 49 years after Roe. I mean, this is like two generations of the conservative legal movement building towards this, really being created because of this. Um, and I think that Roe being so profoundly wrong, just as a constitutional matter and also as a as a as a policy matter, has really just galvanized this what we now think of as the conservative legal movement and originalism itself. And it's all kind of come together in this and and. 
and Alito, you know, he, he, he starts that abortion presents a profound moral issue on which Americans hold sharply conflicting views. You know, he, Hey, so real, real quick, Kyle, why don't, why don't yeah. you tell us when you say that this is kind of the birth of the legal movement, what do you mean by that? And tell us a little bit about the federal society maybe, because I think, I think it's important to realize that this, this was not a decision that came from a whim. <laughs> this was yeah. a very long held view and, the conservative legal movement built towards it for for 50 years, longer than you and I have been alive. Well, right. And I think until maybe the 1930s, there was just a, a pretty limited view of what courts could do. I mean, most expansions, expansions of rights came through constitutional amendments or legislation, you know, from Congress or the state legislatures. It, with the New Deal, that started to change, but still it was mostly legislation going on, and, and really the court stepped in a way even farther back. So it was still this this idea that courts weren't just going to read things how they want to read them. They're, they're this idea of a living constitution, which you hear less now, but it was a it was a, a view for a while and still is in some places. Was that you know that that didn't exist? There was the law. It's what it was. It's on paper. It's in precedence, and that's it. You get to the the fifties and the sixties, and the momentum of progressive legislation slows, and people kind of have had enough. They're not voting for that stuff anymore, but doesn't mean the progressives aren't going to still push for it. And they end up going through the courts and get a lot of rulings, some of which were pretty good, some of which were pretty bad, and I think the worst of which, for a lot of reasons, was Roe v. Wade. Just this idea that. There's something in the Constitution. It's not written in words. It's not written in the court's prior precedents. It's not written in our nation's history or any of the state laws that were going on at the time or any point. But it's just something that judges thought was was definitely in there. Uh, the word liberty is in there a lot. This is a kind of liberty. Therefore, it's a right. And you can't do anything about it. Congress can't overrule it. States can't overrule it. And I think that there had already been pushback against the Warren Court and the Burger Court who you know, were the the courts that were expanding a lot of rights in ways that Congress and the states had never explicitly authorized. But some of those things were not so, I mean, you know, you talk about like the Miranda case, right? You've got to read some of these rights. That's not going to start a whole movement. I mean, I don't know if it was correctly decided or not, but it was, it was not so atrocious in the result. You know, it might, it might say, well, the court kind of overstepped its bounds on this, but it's not a big harm, is it? That you have, you can you have to tell a guy his rights when you arrest him. Not so bad. In this one, I think it was unique because you have the you have the constitutional wrong where it's just made up out of whole cloth, and you also have the policy wrong where it's an atrocious result in the eyes of a lot of people in America then and now. You know the idea that I mean this there are millions of people in America, many millions who see this as no different from murder, and others who maybe don't see it as that bad, but they see it as something that shouldn't be allowed. It's close to that. So I think that came together to, to sort of crystallize for a lot of thinkers on the right in the legal profession and in legal academia to say, we need to articulate why this isn't good. We can't just, it, there wasn't really a need for this thing called originalism, this idea that the constitution is what it was originally generally understood to be. Because everyone kind of already knew that when it was written and in the years after. But courts ran so wild with it that it really kind of forced this reaction 
that I think became this predominant view in many ways in in the courts and in and in legal academia. Even even many liberals still are now acting as though they're originalists in, in ways. I mean, they don't go fully that way, but like Justice Kagan said in their confirmation hearing, we're all originalists now. They all look to the history now. They all look to the text a lot more than they used to. <clears throat> so I think Roe was so significant that it really created that legal movement. And at the same time, it created the political movement. I mean, you've had the March for Life every year, bigger every year. I mean, you get hundreds of thousands of people out there in Washington in, in the bitter cold because they held it in January when, when Roe was decided. And, you know, th- these are people who are, are motivated by the desire to get rid of this heinous crime. And, and, and at the very least to say, it's not a constitutional right. So I, I think that's when you see people being energized about this, it's not just the activists. I think it's, it really is something that is, is deep within the political and legal conversation and has been for five decades now. Mm-hmm. All right. That's well articulated. So he starts out by giving us a sense for what the Roe v. Wade decision was like. He says, for the first 185 years of American history, states were permitted to address the issue of abortion according to their own its own views of its citizens. And, and in fact, every state held it as uh, criminally illegal for most of the history of America. And he says, so the, the Roe v. Wade decision created this new right of abortion, and it built upon some older cases, the Griswold decision, which created a right of privacy that it found, it says, uh, in the penumbras, which is a word mm-hmm. meaning like in the, the shadows, basically in the corners. So in, uh, in, the, in the corners or in the shadows of the language of the Constitution of the text, they found a right to privacy. And then building on that right to privacy in the Roe decision, they, found, they said, well, actually, the right to privacy implies basically this right of uh, to have an abortion as well, to make decisions about your body. And the, the court doesn't really go through, go through law. It doesn't really, um, make, it doesn't make any mention of like what the, what the constitution says about abortion, because we should make it very clear. If you haven't read the constitution, it says nothing at all about abortion. It doesn't even say anything about privacy, mm-hmm. although it, there, I think it's, a, there's a better case to make that it implies some privacy, but the court in 1973 decided that there was this right of abortion and it created this scheme which says uh, each trimester of pregnancy is regulated differently. The critical line was drawn at the end of the second trimester, which at that time was understood to to correspond to uh, viability. Viability is this idea that uh, the baby, the fetus has the ability to survive outside the womb. And so it was kind of decided that, well, in the second trimester, back in the 70s, a fetus could probably survive outside of the womb. So you could have essentially no restrictions in the first trimester. You could have some restrictions in the second trimester and then, you know, much more stringent restrictions in the third trimester. And of course, this follows kind of a, maybe a, a, a 
intuitive logic of how we understand the growth of a fetus into a baby. But obviously, there's nothing in the Constitution that talks about trimesters or, yeah. <laughs> or, or uh, you know, second trimester and viability and, and well, you can limit it that at this, and, but you can't limit it at this time. Um, but in, in a lot, it's clearly, even though there is some intuition involved, it's, it's still incredibly arbitrary to say, well, at, at, uh, you know, at this, uh, you know, 12 weeks, you can do this and the next 12 weeks you can do something else. And then, you know, the following 15 weeks or something like that, you can do less. And so the court didn't really have a justification other than to say, well, we've, we think because you have a right of privacy, you should also have this right. And in a subsequent case in 92, so almost 20 years later, the court came back and reviewed the Roe decision and the makeup of the court had changed as almost all of the justices had changed over, not all of them, but almost all of them. And you did have a more uh, uh, conservative court in the early nineties, but they, they couldn't come to a decision about what to do with it at that time. And so in the Casey decision, they, in essence, overruled Roe, except that the, the, the internal logic of it remained the same, which was the right of abortion is upheld, but instead of this trimester thing, we're going to move to this idea of an undue burden. So the court says... States can impose restrictions on abortion as long as it doesn't create an undue burden on the mother. And of course, they don't define what undue burden is, and that becomes incre- it's an incredibly subjective phrase and really doesn't answer the question. And the, so the central holding of Roe essentially stays, which is like the, 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 the intuitive logic of the three trimesters, essentially, even though it's technically overruled it more or less has, has remained to the present day where the court has, uh, courts have been suspect of, uh, suspicious of any laws that kind of move into that first trimester. They're more lenient with allowing states to have laws in the second trimester and, you know, much more, uh, forgiving when it comes to restrictions in the third trimester. And so that's where we are today. And so the state of Mississippi passed this law that, would prohibit any abortion after the 15th week of pregnancy. So essentially after that first trimester. And the the state of Mississippi uh, was sued, of course. And in the, in the oral arguments, what the, what this, what Mississippi really wanted was not just their law upheld, but they really wanted Roe and Casey overruled. Hmm. And here we are, the, the Casey decision was in 92 and here we are in 2002. So, you know, 30 years later in an entirely different court and Mississippi, what they really wanted was the, the, was, were these rulings to be completely struck down and overruled. And what's interesting is that the Biden administration, the solicitor general basically said, agreed with Mississippi in that uh, Mississippi said, well, if you uphold this, you basically are you know, overruling Rowan Casey and the, and the Biden administration more or less agreed. <laughs> said, yeah. So you had both sides agreeing, like you either need to completely overrule it or you need to um, strike down the Mississippi law. 
So one or the other needs to be struck down. Either Roe and Casey needs to be struck down, or the Mississippi law needs to be struck down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they both went all in, and it and uh, well, we see what happens by by a six three vote. The court uh, explicitly overrule both those cases, and I I like that even though they quote Alito quotes early on from uh, Justice White's dissent in Roe, where he calls it a uh, an exercise of royal judicial power. And I think that's kind of what we've been talking about here. There's not, like you said, there's not a lot of precedence cited in Roe. There's not a lot of text cited. It's just a lot of balancing tests. And Casey was the same way. So they they took the the central ruling of Roe, but they basically rewrote the whole thing again, like you said. And it's just got a lot of this wishy-washy language that doesn't sound like law to me. I mean, yeah. like, it, like in Casey, they, uh, the opinion says... At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Beliefs about these matters could not define the attributes of personhood were they formed under the compulsion of the state. I mean, that's that's a lot of hogwash. I mean, it's very poetic. It's like you know, it's who I think it was Justice Kennedy that wrote that part in in Casey. But it, and it's you know, he's a good writer, but it doesn't mean anything. You know, I mean, you could say that about any law, right? Like I have to decide. I have to define my own concept of uh, of property, and that means I can take from your store without paying. You know, like what does it what does it mean? It's it's all like it sounds a lot like some of the postmodern stuff you hear now about defining your own identity, defining yeah. your own existence. It's just there's nothing to it. It's all very squishy, and it's. I think it. I think a lot of these judges in both the cases before saw themselves in the tradition of of English common law justices or judges, the ones that they read about in years past where English common law, which was imported to these colonies that became the United States. A lot of it was based on very vague things from the past, or, you know, maybe it, there was a statute involved that was very short and what did it mean? And, and courts got to expound on these things and, it, and the law developed. And, you know, it was, that's how we get a lot, a lot of the basic crimes we have today are common law crimes. I mean, some states have written them as statutes, but they started out as these things that were judge-made law. But that doesn't really work in the Constitution because we wrote it down. You mm -hmm. know, Britain doesn't have a written Constitution even still. And so there's a lot of unwritten things that are as good as law, but it's not written down anywhere. And now, I mean, even nowadays, they most of their laws are statutes like everybody else's. But I think there's this there's this idea in Roe and, and in, again in Casey where a, a section of the court decides we're going to be the wise men. We're going to be the, the ones who rise above the fray and we're just going to settle this for everybody. And I think they really thought in Roe, and you, you, you see this in a lot of writing about it, they thought this was, oh, it's getting ugly, this issue. Why don't we just settle it now mm. and uh, it'll be good. Just like uh, the court had done 20 years earlier in Brown versus Board of Ed which by the 70s was basically a settled idea. I mean, they were still fighting over mandatory busing and things, but it was, you know, desegregation 20 years later was, a, yeah, everybody agreed. You can't have separate schools for the different races. That's absurd. They, I think they thought that was going to happen with Roe. Uh, it did not, uh, clearly. And uh, instead you get this sort of thing that where they're, they're not saying even yes or no to a law. They're writing a whole new law. They're writing, you know, that's, like you said, most of these states in 73, it was just a crime to do this thing. 
Now the court says, well, not only is it not a crime, it's a right. And here's exactly how we're going to define it. And like one of the, the uh, scholars from the left that, that Alito quotes says, I would vote for a law like this, but that's not what is going on here. Mm-hmm. We're not voting. You know, the This isn't a legislature voting on a law that's been debated in front of the people. This is seven judges just dropping this thing and saying, game over. This is it. We, uh, we're the wise ones. We figured it out. And that, that raw judicial power that Justice White talks about is resonated to this day. And I, I think that's what's kind of striking about Dobbs is it's not the court saying, we're going to tell you how it is and it's different now. They're saying, we're not going to tell you how it is. It's not our job to tell you how it is. Figure it out. Um, mm-hmm. Just like we had done through our whole history up until 1973. Figure it out. Elect people. I mean, every candidate has to take a position on this thing anyway, even though none of them had any power to do anything about it until now. <laughs> Here it is. Um, figure it out just like every other crime, every other healthcare issue, whatever you want to call it. These are all things that aren't dictated by courts. They are they're made by laws, by elected officials in a democracy. And that there was so much talk after the ruling from the left of like our democracy is under attack. You know, I, I think they just say that now without thinking it through, because how could anything be more democratic than giving the people the right to decide things instead of an unelected judge? Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, this is this is democracy. This is a republic. Here it is. I think you make the right point about this being a policy question that I think people can agree or disagree where to draw the line, let's say, for example. And mm-hmm. I think um, unlike, and we're, we're going to talk about this a little bit, but unlike a, a number of other cases, there is a strong countervailing um, concern, which is the the rights of the of the unborn, of the fetus. And, and I think that, I think we can have some discussion and maybe not entirely agree, but come to kind of an idea generally of that if, if we're trying to balance the rights of the two. You certainly have folks who say, well, life begins at conception. And you have folks who say um, the woman's right to choose trumps all even up until the the last day of the ninth month, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think when we hear about polling and there's uh, obviously the media is very strongly, very overwhelmingly strongly in the in the camp of pro-abortion. And there probably has not been a, an issue in our lifetime where it's just so overwhelmingly one-sided. Um, I don't. I don't know that I've. They, uh, we know that the media is biased. We know that media like leans heavily left and is incredibly um, biased in, in in so many ways. But this issue, I think, is completely settled. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and so you hear they hear the polling is that. Uh, the, you know, 67, 70% of Americans support Roe v. Wade. Well, one of the reasons we're going through this case is just to, to describe what Roe v. Wade is, because I don't think most people do. I think that, I think for them, for most people, most Americans, it's just a heuristic telling them, like, do you think that women ought to be able to have um, an abortion? And it doesn't, it, we don't go any deeper and say, like, well, should you be able to have an abortion at week 41? <laughs> mm-hmm. When you dive into deeper polling, it's very clear that most Americans kind of follow that kind of, that kind of intuitive 
um, understanding of of the Roe decision. So, in, if as a policy matter, maybe you know Roe had some intuition involved in it. Although I think you and I would, you know, definitely draw the lines differently. But but mm-hmm. the the kind of the intuitive sense of the trimesters when you when you actually dig deeper in the polling, I think you, you'll see that most people. Uh, the the vast majority of Americans are in the camp of there's abortion should be allowed. We should definitely have exceptions that that go late, but really after after the you know sixteen eighteen twenty week um, line, there really should be no reason for an abortion except for the life of the mother. That's where the polling shows, and incidentally, that's where Europe has come down. Yeah, even though we have uh, you know we have Prince Harry giving uh, uh, lectures to Americans about uh, about Roe v. Wade and, and abortion rights. I mean, basically all of Europe tracks the Mississippi law that that uh, the left in America found found to be so heinous and, and you know, ripping the, the rights from women away. So anyway, that's where the polling is. Here in this case, we have Alito going through, uh, first of all, he asked the question, does the Constitution confer a right of abortion? He he goes through uh, the the case law in this, but I mean the bottom line is no. There's it, it's the, he comes to a e- very easy conclusion. This is not a tough call, mm-hmm. and the and the dissent doesn't even argue this whether that whether it's in the Constitution or not. Yeah, I mean that was striking. It's, it's usually I think they'll try and argue along the same grounds, but the dissent was just sort of policy politics, you know, everyone's going to be mad. This is bad. People have relied on this, but none of it is about law. And that's kind of, I, I was a little surprised, but maybe it's because that's all there is. I mean, maybe there is nothing Because I mean, Alito really eviscerates the whole argument that there was any basis in law for this being a right. The best they can say is that in some laws, in some places, it wasn't illegal all the time. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a lot of things. I mean, there's a lot of things that aren't illegal even still fewer than there used to be, but there are still some things that are just, it's not illegal. It's not mandatory. It's not a right. It's just, you know, do it if you want to. Well, and so on that point, I mean, he, 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 he spends a lot of the decision. Most of the text of his decision is dedicated to this question of, is there, is there something in the nation's history and tradition, you know, like, is there, and this other correlated question, not quite the same, but similar. Is this an entrenched right? In other words, like, is okay? It's not in the text, but is this something that's intrinsic to being American? You know, mm-hmm. is this part of our heritage and our tradition? And he just—it's very—he spends a lot of text, basically getting to the easy conclusion of like, no, of course not. <laughs> Most states made it a crime, illegal, really, until the fifties and sixties, when a few states started changing their their views. I mean, contrast this to the Griswold decision, for example. By the time Griswold was was decided, which I think was, what was it, 1970 or 68, something like that. But around that time, every state except Connecticut had had uh, legalized contraception, birth yeah. control. So it had become pretty settled versus when it comes to abortion, to the extent that it was settled, it was very much settled in the other direction. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, he, you know, he, he easily concludes that this there's there's nothing in our history or tradition. There's nothing in our heritage. It's not entrenched right. Now, the left and the dissent, they heckle Alito for this. 
And, you know, they'll say, well, okay, so if you're you're looking back in history and saying, you know, what did they think in the late uh, 18th century? Well, women didn't even have a right to vote. They didn't have citizenship. And those are good points to be made. But that doesn't really tell us whether or not that uh, that abortion was an intrinsic decision. It, it tells us like, well, maybe it's a policy decision that we should vote on. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't, you know, it, it does tell us that like, okay, maybe there's some, some reason to, uh, I guess, take a closer look at it and debate the question from a policy standpoint, but it really doesn't tell us anything about, is it in the constitution or not? And I think that it's, uh, it's, it's really, uh, a, uh, a straw man to say, Oh, okay. Well, um, I guess Alito, what you're saying is if, uh, if, you know, if the right to anything wasn't available to women where no, they had no rights, well then obviously we can't have any other rights. No, that's not what he's saying at all. What he is saying is like, if, if we're going to make this a constitutional right and we need to clarify this for, for all of our edification, the court is very clear. And when we get to the Kavanaugh, uh, concurrence, like he really dives into this, but the, the decision is very clear. Alito's very clear. Like we're not saying that abortion should be illegal. Mm-hmm. What we're saying is that it's not in the Constitution, so it's not a constitutional right. It's a question f- to be debated like alcohol age, you know, yeah. or driving age, or fishing licenses, <laughs> or, you know, any any one of a, uh, a million different p- public policy questions that that state legislatures vote on or that Congress votes on. And you have to you know, they have to find the balance and you have to find a compromise and you have to figure it out. And what they're, what the, what this decision is, is not outlawing abortion, not in any way. Instead, what they're saying is we as judges don't have the authority to make this decision because it's not in the constitution. It's not part of our history. It's not part of our tradition. It's not an entrenched right. So this is a question for the people and should be returned to the people. Exactly. And it comes down, I, th- I think, to consent of the governed, where nobody has given the court the right to wade in on most decisions, um, including this one. And when they did that, it's sort of, it's if, you know, but where do you get that from? Where do you, th- I, I know you're, you're a lifetime appointee, you're very prestigious, very learned, but why do you think you have the right to bind the people to these things? When we talk about a free speech ruling, at least you can say, well, you know, this amendment was voted in by Congress and the states. Everyone agreed to be governed by it. It's old. I mean, nobody alive agreed to be governed by it, but it's still there. It hasn't been repealed. There's a text you can look at. There's discussions about what that means you can look at. And there's something, that, a touchstone, something they can say this. This is why I can say the law has to be thus, because... People have agreed to it. This is a republic. At some point, anything that the state does to bind us must be agreed upon at some point by somebody. And, or even things, or even the opposite, any, any power granted to the state, any, any, anything that is a law has to at some point have the consent of the government. And living constitutionalism lacks that This in, mm-hmm. in a really profound way, especially, I mean, sometimes... You know, you get that argument, that sort of straw man argument of, well, they didn't know about this technology back in the day. Is that not protected? Like, you know, like there's in the Fourth Amendment, we have protection against unreasonable searches and seizures, which, you know, people should be secure in their papers and effects. 
well, we've held that applies to telephones, computers, you know, things like that. And they say, well, does that not, well, but the principle is clearly there. It's a, it's, you can extract one from the other. In this, there's no, there's nothing that this goes back to because this thing, abortion existed in colonial times. I mean, and it was in the law books. It just wasn't in the side that the pro-choice movement wants it to have been in. You know, it was, it was in the, it was in the crime section, <laughs> you know, so it, it, just this, this idea that the court should have any power over it, absent a grant of power from the people, it's hard to figure, except that I, like I was saying earlier, I think when they started to lose battles at the, in the ballot box, they just shifted the field, got some judges to do what they wanted, but they couldn't pass through a legislature, got passed through a judge. That's changing. I mean, the EPA decision too, this term is sort of the same way saying, you know, if you want to do something, you have to pass a law. And if you want to make a constitutional right, you've got to pass an amendment. Mm-hmm. That's, that's your job. Everyone talks about how hard it is to do these things, but I don't think Congress really tries. And if an issue does have widespread support, we, we've passed amendments before. We've passed laws. I mean, we pass laws all the time. Not on anything big these days, but they do exist. And and these states are all passing laws since this decision. And some of them even had some ready to go before the decision. So it is possible. And, and I think we're going to see that return to democratic processes. And I, I really, I hope it means that legislatures are going to remember what they're there for. Yeah, so building on that, Kavanaugh really touches on a lot of this in his concurrence. Mm-hmm. So just for all, all of our understanding, a concurrence means Justice Kavanaugh voted with the majority, so he agreed with the Alito decision. But a concurrence is just saying, I agree with the decision, but there's something else I want to say. <laughs> and and <laughs> yeah. uh, the extra thing that he wants to say is a couple things. He says, the issue before this court is not the policy or morality of abortion. This is what you and I have just been talking about. The issue before this court is what the Constitution says about abortion. And the Constitution does not take sides on the issue of abortion. The text of the Constitution does not refer or encompass abortion. So on the question of abortion, the Constitution is therefore neither pro-life nor pro-choice. The Constitution is neutral and leaves the issue for the people and their elected representatives to resolve through the democratic process. So I really like how how explicit he was. Yeah, and I, and I think uh, a lot of folks have picked up on this. Is he he just in his concurrence? What he really wanted to say more is he's basically saying. So just so everyone understands, just so we can clarify this, the Constitution says nothing about abortion, including that it should be illegal. So there, what it means is the Constitution does not take sides, and it needs to be hashed out by the political branches, by state legislatures, maybe by Congress. But he says the Constitution does not grant the nine unelected members of this court, of the Supreme Court, the unilateral authority to rewrite the Constitution to create new rights and liberties based on our own moral or policy views. And really, this is the crux of the disagreement between right and left when it comes to constitutional jurisprudence, when it comes to interpreting the Constitution. The conservative legal movement is very much in the camp, whether they're, you know, whether you're an originalist, you know, textualist, whether you, and, and we've talked about some of these concepts before, we won't get into them now. But I think there's a little bit of disagreement, you know, of, in terms of like where exactly you land. But when it comes to the conservative legal mu- movement, there, there's differing opinions, but it all comes down to the same thing, which is there must be limiting principles. And those limiting mm-hmm. principles start with the justices don't get to 
just read in their own values and their own policy preferences into the Constitution. That's very much a, a conservative view of the Constitution. On the left, for progressives, for liberals, they very much think that they should be able to read in <laughs> their mm. new rights and liberties based on their own policy preferences. And that's where the dissent really comes out. The dissent, as you said, is is very explicit about I mean, it's it's a it's a long uh, discussion of what this does to women from a policy standpoint. You know, it's uh, they're saying uh, the court discards the balance, and now we are going to force women to have babies that they don't want to have, and it's gonna uh, it's gonna block women from making choices for their own bodies. It's gonna. Uh, create risk of death or physical harm. And it says a vast array of circumstances, a state will be able to impose its moral choice on a woman and coerce her to give birth to a child. So it's very much these policy arguments about what's the best for women and what are the consequences, what are the practical consequences for women. And, you know, we can have this debate and we can discuss like, okay, you know, there is a fetus, when does life begin? There is a mother. Sometimes, sometimes, uh, you know, a, a, a pregnancy is, um, you know, comes about in circumstances that are just very difficult or whatever. These are all questions. And you and I would, you know, probably be on the side of more restrictions at the same mm-hmm. time. Maybe we don't exactly agree on every piece of it. And certainly across our population and the citizens, you know, there's going to be disagreements, but that's the same with any policy issue and that needs to be worked through. And so they, they're not even arguing the dissent. That is the Democrats, the, the liberal justices, the three liberal justices on the court are not even, they're not arguing that it's in the, in the constitution. They're not arguing that it's part of the history or tradition. They're not arguing that it's what they're, the, the only thing they're really arguing is that there are policy consequences to this and then they argue this idea of stare decisis, which is this thing has already been ruled on. So, and, and a lot of women have relied upon this decision. So by you changing it, you're ripping the rug out from under them and you're putting them in this precarious position and causing harm and inflicting damage uh, upon women. So all they're really saying is it was decided once, so we need to stick with it. Of course, Alito in the, the main decision says, well, stare decisis, I mean, we've overruled a lot of stuff in the past, including yeah. uh, slavery, <laughs> including uh, segregation. Mm-hmm. So anyway, kick it to you. Yeah, it, it, that's, it, it is striking how there was, there was no, no argument but politics in the dissent. But I think we, sh- we, we should, before we close, just address the we mostly talked about this from the legal perspective. We should address the political perspective too. Now, I mean, I think our, our training is, or both of us is as lawyers. So that's naturally the way we're going to look at it. And as conservative lawyers, we're going to look at the originalist arguments. But I, I, I just think as, as a policy thing, as a political thing, it's, I'm still kind of in shock that it worked. I mean, I thought, you know, I mean, they thought it was going to get overruled in 92. They thought it was going to get overruled again, I think in, sometime around 06 and always there was this sort of compromise you know where oh republicans have nominated most of the judges but there's always going to be a few of them who try to slither away from what 
we thought they were there for. And Roberts probably would have done that if there hadn't been six conservatives instead of five. Because the way he, his um, what, what he said, what he said, uh, his concurrence about the opinion was that you know he would have struck down this law, but I think he would have held up the basis of the past fifty years of law and just sort of kicked the can down the road. So I'm 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 kind of in shock, and I, I honestly think if this hadn't come out this way, the right might have torn itself apart. Because what else can we do? I mean, we've been voting for people for fifty mm-hmm. years to do this, and they still won't do it, and. I, I think people would have gone insane. People are going insane now on the left, but somebody was always going to go insane. But at least now, I mean, at least now you can you can vote on it. And like you said, you know, it's going to get it's going to get through the state legislatures, and people are going to have to decide all these tough questions, all these borderline issues. And I think the fact that it was out of our hands as a people has encouraged people to be radical. Right. You know, it's encouraged people to be like, nope, every single one is illegal, should be a crime, should be hanged if you do it. And then other people, are, you know, will say like right up to the moment his head comes out, doesn't matter if you kill it. And mm-hmm. I think most people don't feel that way. But that's that's been the political discourse. And that's been a lot of our elected officials have been saying that now they actually have to say what maybe what they really think, but also what they really think is going to get them elected. And like you were saying from the polling, neither of those two extreme positions is likely to carry the day in any but a few states. I think we're going to see we're going to see some nuance uh, like like they did in Europe. I mean, Europe, like you were saying, mostly bans it after 12 to 16 weeks. And even though they were yelling about Dobbs, which bans it at 15 weeks, I mean, the Mississippi law did, their laws are the same and they're, they're they're sort of, I think that's too liberal for me and for a lot of pro-life people, but it's where the people are in those countries. And we're going to find out where the people are for real in this country now that we actually have a chance to decide it, now that that, that power has been returned to our elected officials instead of our uh, appointed philosopher kings in Washington. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, I have my own views on abortion and I, I would be much more restrictive, of course, but... I remember reading this decision in law school and just being so deeply offended by it <laughs> yeah. because it, it it's not uh, it, on two fronts. One on the front of just this complete disregard for the, the child and the, the, the life of the child, but and then also just the hubris of making this decision, doing, pl- playing philosopher king and deciding... Like this is this is what we want, and so this is what we're going to read into it. And so, I very much view this decision as a victory for the the um, integrity of the Constitution and the limiting principles of saying like, what does the text say? Because we can't just read in all of our own policy views. And I do think that there is going to be some serious debates about where to draw the lines mm-hmm. and how to balance the the mother and the child. And many you know states are going to have come to different conclusions, and I think that's a good thing. I really do. Mm-hmm. The left does not think that's a good thing. They want they want uniformity in uh, going in their direction. And, but I think that having states having different uh, ideas on many of these issues is a positive thing. The laboratories of democracy. And I think 
for the vast majority of Americans, even if you're in a state that's more restrictive, most Americans are going to be close enough to another state where they could uh, make decisions if they want to uh, go in another direction. So I think this was the right decision. I applaud it. Mm-hmm. I applaud the bravery of these justices because they knew what was coming, which is what they've received. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh had an assassination attempt on his life. They've all had their houses uh, picketed and protesters and screaming. You know, a couple of them have young kids and they're dealing with this. I think it's uh, I think it's appalling and atrocious, but they made the right decision. And I applaud them for it. All right. I agree. That's the Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs. Catch us next time.